This episode is brought to you by the Colorado Northwestern Community College. Join them for two weeks digging up dinosaur bones from the Jurassic period in Northwest Colorado this summer. For details, go to cncc.edu slash dinodig. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. Hello and welcome to I Know Dino. I'm Garrett. And I'm Sabrina. And today in our 422nd episode, episode 422, we've got the top 22 dinosaur discoveries of 2022. It's all very fitting. <laughs> A lot of twos. Really, it's our favorite 22 dinosaur stories of the year. And a couple of them were from the end of 2021. Yes. And some of them aren't like discoveries per se, but some of them are multiple discoveries. So I think there's still at least 22 discoveries in there. I think so too. There's also a bonus Mosasaur story that we have in the mix as well. We also have Dinosaur of the Day, Hans Susia. And of course, we have two fun facts, which are our two favorite fun facts from 2022. More twos. But before we get into all of that, we want to thank some of our patrons for helping to keep the podcast running. And this week we have one new patron to thank, and that is Chris. Thank you for joining just before the holidays, giving us a little pick-me-up <laughs> for the end of the year. And then rounding out our shout-outs, we've got Talon, Brosis Girl, Sam Enchisaurus, Danny Hermes, Greg, Ben at Jurassic Site B, Morgan Eklov, Kessler, and George. Thank you so much for being our patrons and, you know, for sticking with us through the end of this year. Yeah. And with the SVP bonus content, which we just released, we now have a hundred recordings and even 100 of premium content on our Patreon. Yes. And that bonus Mosasaur story that we're sharing is actually a part of our premium content on Patreon. But you know, it's the season of giving, so we felt like sharing it with you. <laughs> yes, there are 15 other stories in there as well that we won't be sharing in this podcast that's only available to our patrons. Before we get into all of that, I just want to take a moment to go over some of our big accomplishments from the year, because the end of the year is a good time to reflect, and we have a lot to be grateful for this year, starting with, of course, we had our baby earlier in the year. Big accomplishment. Yay. <laughs> yep. She's our favorite person. Yeah. <laughs> In terms of what I Know Dino's done, we got our holiday gift guide out for the year. We did a lot of new types of content for our show. Episodes like What Makes a Dinosaur a Dinosaur and the Dinosaur Connection Challenge. That's our new segment. We hadn't announced the name until just now. <laughs> yeah, we finally came up with a name we liked. We both liked. Yeah, where... If you're a patron, you can give us a topic, any topic, and we find a way to connect it to dinosaurs. And we've done it a few times and we plan on doing it a lot more. This year was the first time we traveled since the pandemic started. Uh, we went to SVP in Toronto, 
And that was great. We got to connect with a lot of paleontologists we hadn't seen in a while. And of course, report on some amazing stories that came out. Yeah, it was the first time it was in person in the last three years too. So yeah, it was our first opportunity to go to SVP in a while. Yes. And then earlier in the year too, we did a live stream with one of the animators who worked on Jurassic Park and Jurassic World, a number of those movies. That was Glenn McIntosh. And that was a lot of fun because he has an amazing collection of dinosaur art. Oh, yeah. And puppets and statues. Sculptures. Sculptures. That's the word. Yeah. And something that I am not sure if we had announced on this podcast, but we got a book deal this year with National Geographic Kids. And so that will be coming out in a couple of years. It's going to be a dinosaur book for kids. Mm -hmm. So stay tuned. And yes, a lot to be grateful for. And of course, on the I Know Dino podcast front, we also covered something like 33 new dinosaur discoveries, which, yes, there were a few more that came out just at the end of this year. We'll be covering <laughs> early next year. Yes. Still very much in the golden age of dinosaur discoveries. Yes. We also reached a milestone episode, episode 400, and we interviewed Michael Benton, and we talked about Hatseg Island, the dwarf dinosaurs, and Franz Nopsha. And there were some other episodes that were a bit less about dinosaur news and more about other topics. If you're looking for something maybe a little more storytelling-like, we also had an episode on Roy Chapman Andrews. He's a very interesting guy. So is Franz Nopsha for sure. I think you said your favorite episode was What Makes a Dinosaur a Dinosaur, which was our episode 392. That was one of my favorites to research. And I also really enjoyed the one you did, Garrett, on how dinosaurs became birds in episode 390. The jury is still slightly out on that, but I covered as much as we do know. <laughs> yep. And yeah, there were countless other episodes we really enjoyed and lots of other great interviews, but too many to mention here. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's safe to say we enjoyed all of our interviews. So without further ado, we're going to get on to our long list of best and most favorite topics from 2022 kicking it off with the soft tissue discoveries. Yes, I love soft tissue discoveries. So we picked out our favorite three. There were more than three. It's right. really hard to narrow down, but these were what we thought the best were. It's amazing we got it down to three. Yeah. <laughs> yeah everything else we got down to at least two, if not one. But soft tissue, we could only narrow it down to three. <laughs> and it's because it is always so impressive when any soft tissue preserves in the fossil record we all learned as kids that the only thing that preserves, the only thing that fossilizes, are bones and hard things like occasionally keratin. So we never expect to find anything soft tissue. But more and more, as researchers know what to look for in the rock and they get better preparation techniques and things, we're finding more and more soft tissue in the fossil record. Mm -hmm. So our favorite piece of soft tissue and what we consider the best soft tissue paper of the year was the description of Dakota, and that's an Edmontosaurus mummy. I mean, it's, if you've got a mummy, you know you've got a lot of good soft tissue. Yes. This dinosaur Dakota is at the North Dakota Heritage Center and State Museum in Bismarck, and it's nearly complete. The skeleton is nearly complete. It's just missing the head, the tip of the tail, and the left arm. It is unfortunate it's missing the head because that's sort of a key part of a dinosaur yeah. or really any oh, vertebrate. Soft tissue in a head, that would be amazing. We've seen a little bit of it before. Mm -hmm. That's like how we know that they didn't have straight up duck bills. They had, you know, teeth that's, or 
a beak over the front that sort of overlapped a little bit. Mm -hmm. But of that skeleton that's preserved, about half of it is covered in skin, which is pretty amazing. It includes a huge continuous area of both hind legs and the hips through all of the preserved tail, the amount of the tail that is preserved. And it also includes the front right leg or right arm if you prefer, but it's quadruped also. It's basically a leg. The skin is also all a little bit shiny due to the high iron content. Oh, yeah. It's like sparkly, glittery skin, which is really beautiful. And it's still being prepared, even though it's being described. It's been worked on for at least 14,000 hours so far. Mm -hmm. There's still quite a bit to do, and that's because they're taking their time since it's such an important specimen and they don't want to accidentally prepare away some of that skin or damage it in any way. The latest discovery, because like I said, this was actually found and put on display way back in 2008, but the latest detail that's been released is that there are tooth and or claw marks on the skin. Yeah. And what they said is, quote, prior to burial, the skin that originally covered the humerus was torn, inverted inside out, and pulled down the forelimb, partially degloving the arm and exposing the internal soft tissues and bones for further modification, end quote. The description of degloving is... <laughs> it is graphic. That was my favorite description of anything in terms of just like really gnarly dinosaur science in the year. Mm -hmm. And they also had another good quote, evidence that the specimen had an extremely thick muscular or fatty tail in life, end quote. Yeah, yeah. Which I, I just thought was really descriptive of how big its tail was. They said it was about 95 centimeters or three feet deep at the base, which is a, just a massive tail. It's yep. hard to even imagine a tail that thick. The authors also proposed a different mechanism than immediate burial to preserve the skin, which they called desiccation and deflation. Basically, the animals are punctured through the skin so that the animals eating on them can get to the tasty internal organs or a few other tasty <laughs> internal things, you know, like muscle and fat and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. But they don't eat it completely, leaving the tough skin and less meaty bits alone. And again, you know, scavengers usually skip the skin. That's why vultures are bald, so they can shove their heads deep inside an animal without getting all sorts of like viscera stuck in their feathers. Also graphic. Yeah. <laughs> and then what they think happened is with all these holes in it, that left space for the juices to sort of ooze out of the body. And that eliminated the optimal environment for bacteria and other microorganisms to decompose. Dakota. So Dakota dried out instead of just decomposing in like a mushy pile <laughs> and then deflated with the skin sort of collapsing down onto the body. And then eventually it got buried maybe months later. And then that sort of aided in the mummification process. So that's partly why I thought this was the best paper on soft tissue because it sort of explained a mechanism for how the soft tissue might be preserved in a lot of these mummies. Yeah. And that one we covered in episode 413, so if you want to hear even more details, check it out. As an honorable mention for soft tissue, we have the dinosaur intestines, which we just covered in the last episode. <laughs> we did think it might have been too recent to include, but it's just so cool. This is that dromaeosaur daolong that was found with intestinal remnants, as the paper put it. 
There's a bluish layer on the back half of the rib cage, and it looks similar to an intestinal tract preserved in another dinosaur, Scipionics. So that is one way to confirm that, yes, these are part of the intestines. Certainly, yeah, the more you find the same thing in different individuals helps you confirm that it's not just some random feature that happens to look like an intestine in one of them. If you see the same thing over and over again, that helps a lot. Yeah. So it helps us learn a lot more about theropods. And, you know, having a couple of specimens now, we know what to look for if, when you're comparing other specimens and you can see, oh, they also have intestinal remnants. Or if we thought that there was something else, like, for example, there's a Sinosauroteryx specimen that we used to think had eggs preserved with it in the abdomen, but now we're thinking they're intestinal remnants. So things can change. And Daolong also is just a really well-preserved specimen. We have a link in the show notes to the paper, which is open access, so you can check it out for yourself. It's really cool to see. And our other honorable mention for soft tissue is the paper we talked about in episode 385 about sauropod goosebumps. Well, goosebump-like structures, <laughs> I should say. Sauropod bumps? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> this was a team that studied or re-examined hastasaurus skin, and they found scales and structures that looked somewhat like goosebumps, also known as papillae. They found it through laser imaging. The specimen is really old. The sample was found back in 1852. Hmm, that is really old. It's nice that it was actually still preserved because a lot of the stuff that was prepped back in especially the mid-1800s, even mid-1900s, a lot of those details got lost. Yeah. What they're thinking is that the structures help sauropods regulate their body heat by increasing surface area to keep them cool. Oh, it's that one. That was a cool one. Yeah. yeah. Basically, they thought the skin was like super porous. Oh, you're mixing that up with an SVP <laughs> talk that talked about diplodocid skin. Oh, that is a different one. You're yeah. right. <laughs> well, it was found in the Mother's Day quarry. That was one of those ones that was hard to decide which one to talk about. Yeah, that was on the short list for the soft tissue talks for this. <laughs> <laughs> but that's a good point. We just have more and more evidence of sauropod skin having these porous structures and you know they were so big they needed a way to stay cool somehow yeah. or in this case i guess bumpy but either way you're helping to increase the amount of surface area mm -hmm. because that is one of the big mysteries with sauropods how do they keep their body cool when they had so much mass and so much heat presumably generated from digesting all that plant material and it was yeah a lot of meat around it basically yeah. even though it's not blubber it's still a lot of insulation yeah I, personally, I just like the idea of picturing a sauropod getting goosebumps. Yeah. Or permanently having goosebumps, just trying to like cool <laughs> off. Oh, <laughs> well, that'd be strange. That is interesting to think of goosebumps as a way to cool off because when we get goosebumps, it's because we're cold. Mm -hmm. And now on to our best paleopathology study. This is another sauropod. It's right up there. Paleopathologies are right up there with soft tissue for us. Oh, definitely. Yeah. I might even like paleopathologies a little bit better because they really, I don't want to say humanize the dinosaurs, but sort of bring them into a more realistic animal sort of frame of mind that mm. they weren't just 
sort of indestructible fighting machines or right. something like that. Well, you can definitely sympathize, maybe empathize. <laughs> yeah. Some of the paleopathologies are gnarly. Yes, definitely. So our winner was published in Scientific Reports by Carrie Woodruff, and it is Dolly. Dolly has the first evidence of a respiratory infection in a sauropod. Yeah, yeah, poor Dolly. And Dolly's actually at the Museum of the Rockies. They found Dolly's skull and the first seven neck vertebrae in a row, sort of in a series, which is really awesome and not something that you typically find. It's hard to find articulated sauropod anything, mm -hmm. let alone multiple vertebrae connected to a head. And Dolly is considered a diplodocid or diplodocid, if you prefer, although the authors used diplodocus for their drawings. So they sort of just went with diplodocus, mm -hmm. even though we don't know for sure which diplodocid it was. The pathology piece of it is that they found, quote unquote, broccoli shaped growths in three neck vertebrae. Ugh, ouch. And again, I'm quoting Riley Black with the broccoli shaped analogy. Mm -hmm, it's a good one. <laughs> it is. And it, it just seems very intense to have sort of broccoli shaped growths. Just, very uncomfortable sounding. Yeah. The most simple explanation for these broccoli shaped growths is that Dolly had air sacculitis. And again, itis, you stick it on the end of anything and it means inflammation of that thing. So air sacculitis means inflammation of the air sacs. It's a really common symptom of other problems. So an infection or a disease can cause air sacculitis. Air sacculitis is basically a symptom of some other issue. It's not a disease itself. And air sacculitis is pretty similar to bronchitis, except that obviously bronchitis happens in the bronchial tubes in the lungs, whereas air sacculitis happens in the air sacs. But birds have air sacs all over the place, and dinosaurs presumably had several different air sacs as well. So in this case, we're talking about air sacs in the neck. Mm -hmm. Even though we don't have air sacs, birds can still infect people when they're sick and when they have air sacculitis. For example, if they have an infection in their air sacs, it sometimes spreads to humans and causes bronchitis. Oh, I didn't realize about bronchitis. Yeah, because we can't get air sacculitis. Mm -hmm. it, bronchitis is more or less our version, although we can get other sorts of inflammation in our respiratory system too. All of it is uncomfortable. Yes, and can be deadly. Sometimes air sacculitis can be spotted with the naked eye on birds because their neck can get super swollen oh. if the air sacs are swelling beneath at like the base of the neck. Modern birds have air sacs there, especially chickens. That's where a lot of these diseases spread. So maybe it was obvious in Dolly the sauropod? It's possible, yes. Although the authors did say, quote, Note that the pulmonary disease infecting this animal would not have been externally evident, but the probable pneumonia-like outward symptoms would have included coughing, labored breathing, nasal discharge, fever, and weight loss, among others, end quote. Mm. So they didn't think you'd be able to see the air sacculitis just, you know, from the inflammation of the air sacs. But obviously, if it's oozing out of its nose and stuff, <laughs> you might be able to notice that. Yep. In an advanced stage, it could also be really extra skinny after weight loss. And in a Q&A at SVP a few years ago, somebody asked how long would the animal have been sick? And they didn't know exactly, but they estimated six to 12 months, which is a, a very long time to be dealing with an infection like that. Yes. They think that Dolly's air sacculitis was most likely caused by a bacteria or fungus. 
And over time, the infection got bad enough in the air sacs that it spread to the bones. And that's why we can see it in the fossil. And it resulted in osteomyelitis. Itis again, that's the inflammation of a bone in this case. And those are those broccoli-shaped growths. Although since the only thing preserved is the osteomyelitis, it's possible it was caused by something other than a respiratory infection. We can't rule out other causes of bone inflammation. However, because the infection seems localized to a few neck vertebrae, it is the simplest explanation that it was an infection in the air sac in the neck. Even more speculative, trying to figure out what might have been the cause of that infection, the Western Interior Seaway would have been warm and damp, which is a good place to grow fungus. So Dolly could have gotten a spurgillosis, which is caused by a fungal infection in birds. It's not biomineralized, meaning you don't get osteomyelitis in birds, but it can be in humans. And the earliest record of aspergillosis is from about 40 million years ago. And in birds, it is lethal without treatment. So if Dolly had aspergillosis, that was likely the cause of death. And even if the cause of the osteomyelitis didn't kill Dolly, it would have weakened it. So it would have had that appearance of nasal discharge and fever and weight loss and all that kind of stuff. So it probably would have been a target for predators. Mm. Well, would you really want to eat something so phlegmy? <laughs> you could just not eat the head and neck. Go for the legs. Mm. That's true. Base of the tail. So we covered that story back in episode 379, if you want to check it out. Keeping with our sauropod theme, we've got earliest sauropod of the year. And by earliest, I mean it lived a long, long time ago, not that, you know, it was the first sauropod of 2022 that we talked Mm. about. (laughs) So this dinosaur, this sauropod, is Embirsaurus. It was found in what is now Zimbabwe, and it's one of Africa's oldest dinosaurs. It lived around 230 million years ago. Yeah, they don't get much older than that. No. The really interesting thing about Embirosaurus, this find, is that it helps show that the earliest dinosaurs lived in the far south of Pangaea in temperate climates. And the gist here is that in the late Triassic, there weren't many geographic barriers, but there might have been climate belts that kept certain animals in certain areas of the world. Yeah, we think like the middle of Pangaea was super hot. Mm-hmm. And in this study, the team made a model and they found that dinosaurs were more likely to move around the world <laughs> when the climate barriers were lowered. This coincides with an event where globally there was just a lot more humidity and that kind of made it less intense in the arid areas. Yeah, it makes sense. I'd rather cross a desert when there's some more humidity and maybe some water from time to time than it being super arid. Yes. (laughs) And then when that happened, dinosaurs started moving north. So makes sense. And these climate barriers may have also affected the movements of other animals like mammals and turtles and amphibians. And that even influenced these groups today. And the fact that you see them in certain parts of the world today is because of where their ancestors were able to go. Yeah. Yeah, that's cool. So yeah, technically about sauropods, but also about climate. Mm-hmm. I should say technically I've been saying sauropod, but in beer source was a sauropodomorph. That makes sense. 230 million years ago would be pretty early for a true sauropod. Yes. 
Up next, we have a carnivore, which any other year might have been the best new carnivore of the year, but we had an <laughs> even better one. <laughs> There's so much competition these days. There is. So this we are calling our best megaraptorid or largest megaraptorid of the year because it's not quite as good as the best carnivore. This new megaraptorid is called Mipe or Mape. I think Mipe is slightly more accurate of a pronunciation that looks a little bit more like Mape because it's spelled M-A-I-P. Being a megaraptorid, unsurprisingly, it's a large carnivore with mega and raptor in the name. <laughs> but maybe surprisingly, if you're not super familiar with megaraptorids, it is not a raptor in any way. The hand claw of the namesake Megaraptor was originally thought to be a toe sickle claw and thus Megaraptor. Mm -hmm. Because the claw was so big. Yeah, the claw was about a foot long and people thought, wow, that's a really big raptor. But it turned out just to be a big hand claw. Still a very impressive claw, a foot long claw on yeah. a hand or a foot is still scary. It's probably scarier on a hand actually. Megaraptor itself is about 8 meters or 26 feet long and weighed about a ton. That's about the size of a typical Allosaurus, although maybe more slender, and it obviously had much more impressive hand claws, especially that first claw. This new Megaraptorid, named Mape, is named after an evil entity from Anikonk mythology that represents, quote, the shadow of the death and, quote, which kills with cold wind hmm. and roams in the Andes Mountains, which I just find to be a very creepy and impressive name for a dinosaur. Yes. Even though Mipe sounds not so scary in English, <laughs> when you know the origin of it, it sounds really cool. And the species name is Macrothorax. Obviously, it has a very bulky body or a, quote, wide thoracic cavity, <laughs> and it is very wide. It's estimated to be over 1.2 meters or four feet wide. Wow. As a bulky individual. For scale, again, the average horse is about two and a half feet wide. So this is a very large animal. It's roughly the same width as a Clydesdale horse. <laughs> I was just about to bring up Clydesdales. Yeah. Yeah. But if a Clydesdale had foot-long claws on arms, and yeah. Yeah, no thank you. <laughs> so Mipe is from the early Maastrichtian about 70 million years ago, so it's pretty late in dinosaur time. And they found a decent number of bones. Unfortunately, they didn't find any of the hands, so no new big hand claws to ogle over or arms or skull. But they did find a ton of the body in different areas. If you want all those details, I get into it in episode 388, but I don't want to list it all out again. For the record, their reconstruction puts it at about 3 meters or about 10 feet tall while standing. They only found a couple fragments from the legs, so this is a pretty rough estimate. But lengthwise, they estimate Mipe was about 9 to 10 meters or 30 to 33 feet long, which would probably make it the largest Megaraptor it ever found. Yeah. And that does make me wonder just how big its hand claws would have been if they found them. We still don't know exactly what the closest relatives to Megaraptorins are, but in their phylogenetic analysis with these more complete bones to work with, they ended up recovering it right next to Tyrannosauroidea, which is really interesting mm -hmm. that this thing with huge claws, famously massive claws. <laughs> the opposite <laughs> yeah. of a Tyrannosaur, yeah. Exactly. Despite being a close relative. 
And similar to tyrannosaurs that seem to sort of fill a void when allosauroids went extinct, that might be the same story with mype taking advantage of the lack of carcharodontosaurids in the southern hemisphere. So very cool new dinosaur, super interesting, and probably super scary. Our next pick is keeping the debate going. You'll know what that means in a second. It's that Taurosaurus is considered a valid dinosaur in the latest paper about it. We covered this in episode 381. The authors of this paper described two frills found from Canada that were either previously attributed to other ceratopsians or hadn't really been described. There were some pieces of the leg associated with one of the frill too, and they found that specimen to be a late subadult or early adult individual, which is just a little bit older than we'd like for settling this debate. But what's cool is this is the first time talking about Taurosaurus in Canada, and it's they even said there's possibly multiple species of Taurosaurus, so really changing the debate there mm-hmm. or upping the ante. <laughs> Going from just Triceratops and no Taurosaurus mm-hmm. to Triceratops, Taurosaurus, and another Taurosaurus, and another Taurosaurus. <laughs> yep. <laughs> it would still help to find a juvenile Taurosaurus, though, in terms of settling the debate that, yes, there is Taurosaurus. So I, I think this debate will continue for a little while. Yes. And our next category were the biggest movies slash shows of the year. I bet you could guess. (laughs) Obviously, we're talking about Jurassic World, Dominion, and Prehistoric Planet. Which came out around the same time, so it was really hard not to compare the two. It was hard. I think the producers over at Apple TV did a very good job (laughs) (laughs) capitalizing on the Jurassic World Dominion Marketing. Yes. And everybody's summer interest in dinosaurs. (laughs) So as far as Jurassic World Dominion goes, I really enjoyed the beginning of Dominion, as I said at the time. Just like with Fallen Kingdom, it featured really fun scenes with dinosaurs in interesting environments. You had that mosasaur taking down a crab boat, which was excellent. You had the little girl getting chased by compies. There was a clip we had seen of Stegosaurus walking across a mountain road with a car swerving off a cliff to avoid it. Mm -hmm. That looked like a YouTube video of somebody like racing down some mountain roads. And then there were doves getting eaten by pterosaurs at a wedding. Oh, yeah. (laughs) That was hilarious. And then there were some other awesome little things like there was a sauropod getting lured out of a log yard and just lots of fun details of dinosaurs in different environments. Mm -hmm. What I really want is a spinoff of just Justice Smith at the CIA in their Dangerous Species Division investigating dinosaur incidents around the U.S. (laughs) That would be fun. Still hasn't been announced. You never know. Yeah, it could happen. It would be great. I mean, they did the whole Camp Cretaceous thing for like five seasons. Mm -hmm. Why not have a couple seasons of Justice Smith running around looking at different (laughs) dinosaurs around the world, getting up to no good? That would be fantastic. I did also enjoy the Therizinosaurus in Dominion. Oh, yeah. And they made it blind and it was sort of like echolocating, clicking and Mm -hmm. stuff. Yeah. I know that it really got a lot of people interested in Therizinosaurus because when I tried Googling Therizinosaurus afterwards, the first thing I got like, was Therizinosaurus real? (laughs) (laughs) So, yeah, 
they definitely helped get a lot of people interested in some of these new dinosaurs. Mm -hmm. But I do have to say Prehistoric Planet may be my favorite dinosaur documentary of all time now. It is so good. It's basically a very modern walking with dinosaurs. So if you haven't seen it yet, I highly recommend getting a month of Apple TV Plus. Maybe you can get a free trial or something and watching it because it's gorgeous. It yeah, it's in a whole other league. It basically looks as good, if not better, than Jurassic World Dominion. Oh. The animation quality in it is beautiful. There are scenes with other animals than just dinosaurs, too. Like they have some crabs scurrying along the sand. Mm-hmm. And I still can't tell if that was a real crab or if that was CGI. There's some <laughs> moments where you can tell it's CGI, but I think some of it is real. They did such a good job mixing in real effects mm-hmm. and real animals with different CGI that it's it's fantastic. And there are a few things in it which are a little bit out in left field, like sauropods with like these big puffy balloons on their neck. Oh, yeah. I loved watching that. And there are Carnotaurus with like these bright blue arms that they're like flinging around almost like a hummingbird or something, which definitely is not, you know, settled science. It's more of like a a fun hypothesis. But there are other things in there that like my favorite scene in the whole series was that velociraptor sort of gliding down the cliffs Mm -hmm. and trying to take advantage of these pterosaurs nesting and getting at their eggs and the young and yeah it's just so interesting like i'd never even considered that maybe velociraptor would have had that tail fan or maybe that was an early advantage for having something wing-like on their body yeah sort of attacking things on cliffs it was just so interesting and so cool to see i will say i like both dominion and prehistoric planet they just feel different things depending on what you're looking for. Yeah. As like big time science nerds, Prehistoric Planet is more our wheelhouse, Mm. but Jurassic World Dominion was still pretty enjoyable. Oh yeah. And like you said, it got people interested in different kinds of dinosaurs Mm -hmm. and they introduced feathered dinosaurs. Their animations were also pretty great. Yeah. I'm happy that even though the critical reception of Jurassic World Dominion wasn't great, fans still really liked it and it made a ton of money because that means that there's going to be more money available for other dinosaur projects Mm -hmm. and that people will hopefully keep talking about them and it didn't go the way with jurassic park 3 which i actually really enjoyed yeah but critically it was not well received and fans didn't really like it and then the franchise just sort of died for like 20 years right so i definitely prefer it this way and some dinosaur projects have already been announced so here we go we talk even more in depth about both of these shows in episode 394. Our next category is most misunderstood dinosaur. (laughs) (laughs) And that's because it's all about the dodo. This was our April Fool's episode 383 and go way in depth about the dodo bird, which is, turns out, very misunderstood. It's kind of the symbol for extinct animals. But it was actually very resilient, Mm -hmm. and it was discovered at a weird time in human history. It's very similar to the misconception about dinosaurs and dinosaurs being like big, lumbering, oafish, irrelevant animals. Mm -hmm. Like Dodo is synonymous with being- Dumb. Yeah. And so like people are like, oh, that dumb Dodo, that's why it went extinct. Yeah. And wasn't that case at all. Yeah. I want to share- a quick poem that I found when I was researching this episode. 
The dodo used to walk around and take the sun and air. The sun yet warms his native ground. The dodo is not there. The voice which used to squawk and squeak is now forever dumb. Yet you may see his bones and beak all in the museum. <laughs> dumb there, I think they mean quiet. Mm-hmm. That's a good poem. Mm-hmm. And true, we have the skeletons of it, although there aren't any good taxidermied ones, because like you said in that episode, we don't really know exactly what it looked like. No, we have some speculations, there's some paintings, but the record keeping was just, it was a different style back then. Yeah. And for a long time, people didn't believe dodo birds existed, and then once <laughs> they went extinct, people didn't believe that they went extinct. Yeah. <laughs> Yep, and the paintings don't agree either. Mm -hmm. So like, I remember you went into some detail about which painting was probably the most accurate and all that, but when you have multiple different paintings and they all look a little different. Right, and one of the most accurate paintings was actually not native. Like, There's other birds and they're not native to where the dodo was from, and it's because that dodo got shipped as a present somewhere <laughs> far, far away and ended up in a collection of birds, exotic yeah. birds. It was like painting something that's in a zoo, basically. Yeah. So yeah, poor Dodo. We also have our favorite new segment, which is the Dinosaur Connection Challenge. So far, we've connected dinosaurs to sandwiches in episode 411, chocolate in episode 414, and baking in episode 415. We have a lot more to go. Yeah, we have a long list of really good suggestions. Yeah, it's super fun to do. I love talking about dinosaurs in weird ways, mm -hmm. and I think this is a really enjoyable way to do it. And it goes in really weird directions, too. <laughs> like, somehow you manage to connect turtles to sandwiches and dinosaurs. Yeah, because the question is, is a turtle a sandwich? Which I still don't think is quite resolved. <laughs> but it's, you know, it's got, like, the <laughs> shell on the top and the bottom and, like, the meaty part in the middle. It's pretty, sort of like a living sandwich. <laughs> <laughs> Especially if you eat raw meat like a dinosaur or like a, you know, T-Rex. Oh, I don't think you even brought that point up then. <laughs> More to the debate. Mm -hmm. We have a really niche category next, which is best news for Ubi Rajara fans, <laughs> especially if you're in Brazil. And that's because in episode 408, we covered that Ubi Rajara is returning to Brazil. And it was at the State Museum of Natural History Karlsruhe in Germany and for a long time there was this debate or I guess battle to get the Ubi Rajara fossils returned to Brazil. And they basically had taken the stance that they weren't going to return them. Yes, but then the museum changed their mind. Nice. Yeah, it's good. I think there was a lot of back and forth and probably a lot of negotiations happening. Yes. It's always good when dinosaur fossils are near where they're discovered. We talk about this all the time. Mm -hmm. But especially when you're talking about a holotype or a really scientifically important specimen, yeah, it's nice when it's near where it was discovered because that's where you can do the relevant science to that animal. Yes. Then we've got in our next category, best dinosaur embryo. This might be my favorite. It's definitely one of my favorites of the year in terms of dinosaur stories, and it's about baby Ingliang. We talked about this in episode 373, and it's an embryo that's in an egg, and it's so complete, and it looks like a baby curled up in the egg. Mm -hmm. So it's really cute. It's exquisitely preserved, is what the paper says, and I agree. 
looking at the images. It's also open access. So if you get a chance, you should look at the images. We have a link to it in our show notes from the episode. Yeah, it's very different than the SVP embryos we talked about, where people describe them as like being shaken up mm-hmm. and just all jumbled up where you can barely even tell if it's a dinosaur or not. Yeah. This one, the skeleton's nearly complete. It's only missing the right forelimb. And it's fully articulated, right? Like you can see mm-hmm. the exact position of it. Yeah, you see it in this posture that shows a tucking behavior. And we see that posture in modern birds and embryos like chickens. So it's really cool because then we can see more of this connection between dinosaurs and, well, non-avian dinosaurs and birds. Yeah, and the tucking is, right, like how they fold up so that they fit in the egg? Yeah, fit in the egg and then I think eventually hatch. Hmm. It's really small, about nine inches or 23 and a half centimeters long. And if you look at the images, yeah, it's really, it has made full use of the space it has in its egg. It's probably a late stage embryo. Yeah, that makes sense because otherwise it'd be less likely to fossilize. But that is super cool. Yeah. So we have way more details about that in episode 373. And I just want to mention, so this year we had the embryo, which was really cool. Last year we had the ankylosaur in a resting posture from Mongolia. Mm-hmm. Lots of great stuff coming out every year. Now we're going to pause for a quick sponsor break, but afterwards we have amazing new stegosaurs, T-Rex arms, our best herbivore and carnivore of the year, plus the bonus about mosasaurs. This episode is brought to you by the Colorado Northwestern Community College, where you can become a part of the scientific process. As a participant, you can go on a real-life dinosaur dig, and you'll be helping to advance science and our understanding of the ancient world. What's really cool is that the fossilized bones that are being excavated, they're public, and they're going to be displayed and preserved for future generations to study and admire. Yeah, we've mentioned how that's a really important part of the scientific process, not just getting them out and describing them once, but keeping them and preserving them so that future questions and future scientists can take a look at those bones to answer new questions and validate results. And the site is special and also near and dear to me because it's in the Morrison Formation, known for the sauropods, Mm -hmm. of course, of the Jurassic time. And it represents one of the best bone beds ever found in the saltwash member. Yeah, the current interpretation is that the site was the result of a Brachiosaurus sort of jamming up a river and then other carcasses piling up behind it. Oh, no. And that's how we got a bunch of different types of dinosaurs all fossilizing together. So, oh, no, but also, yay. (laughs) Good for us as scientists. Mm -hmm. And dinosaur enthusiasts. Yes. So there are two scheduled digs if you want to get involved with getting these bones out of the ground. You can go from July 6th to July 20th or from July 22nd to August 5th. Head over to cncc.edu slash dinodig. You'll get all of the details. Just make sure that you register online by May 31st. And again, that is cncc.edu slash dinodig, D-I-N-O-D-I-G. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. 
All right. So now we're getting to the good stuff because the good, these are all the good things. <laughs> but this is the best early thyreophoran. Oh, I see. Yeah. Biased. Another pretty specific category, but there were several good thyreophorans. So that was what I came up with for this category. <laughs> so you could squeeze a few in. <laughs> you might be able to tell that every year we find our favorite stories and then we make up the categories <laughs> to fit <laughs> the stories. But like we don't always have the best early sauropodomorph. That's not, not. Or the most misunderstood dinosaur. Yeah. Yeah. But the best early thyreophoran of 2022 was Yakapil or mm. Jockapil, if you prefer. It was published on my birthday. Again, I just want to remind everyone of that because it is a birthday present to me, I think. <laughs> <laughs> Sci-Fi called it a cross between a Stegosaurus and a T-Rex. Others said it looked like a T-Rex covered in armor, possibly because of its small arms. Others said it was dog or cat-sized. I think that it looks mostly like a little tiny armored herbivorous carnotaurus mm. because it has a really deep head and tiny arms and it has armor. Mm -hmm. They found a whole bunch of fragments of bones from around it, but they also found a bunch of osteoderms, a nearly complete jaw, which is how we know that it had that really deep head, and leaf-shaped teeth, which are typical of thyreophorans and some other herbivores. That's why we think it's a thyreophoran. The most noticeable feature is how deep its jaw appears. Even without the crest, it sort of has a crest on it. It's pretty deep for a thyreophoran too, and especially for an herbivore. You know, we see deep jaws on things like Tyrannosaurus, but this thing was chewing on plants, presumably. It's also reconstructed in a typical bipedal stance, which I think is why we got all those comparisons to T-Rex, why it reminds me of Carnotaurus. It is very small, though. However... It's considered a subadult and probably wouldn't have grown all that much more. They found seven growth marks in a rib, which means that it was at least seven years old. It might have even been older if there was a little remodeling in that rib in the early years. The individual is estimated at, quote, less than 1.5 meters in body length, which is under five feet. It's hard to tell exactly since we have no idea what its tail looks like <laughs> since we didn't find that other than one vertebra. And they estimated that it weighed about four and a half to seven kilos or 10 to 15 pounds, which is probably a more precise estimate since we have a partial femur to work with. And that's a really good way to estimate body mass. Interestingly, it seems to be the most close relative of Scalidosaurus, which is usually depicted as a big, heavily armored quadruped. And this one looks like, you know, a bipedal little cat or dog-sized yeah, thing. Yeah, it's pretty cute. It's, yeah, very interesting what's going on with this animal. There's also a whole bunch of details about the osteoderms that I get into in the description, the full description that we did in episode 409. But the key is that it's from the beginning of the late Cretaceous, about 94 to 97 million years ago, so it would be expected to be pretty derived, you know, having lots of these features that you find in Cretaceous dinosaurs, but it's actually more like Scalidosaurus from the early Jurassic, about 100 million years earlier, which is just crazy. It means there's would be at least a 100 million year ghost lineage of Thyreophorans, basal Thyreophorans in South America, which is just crazy. However, there's a big asterisk to all this because Susanna Maidment suggested on Twitter that Yakapil may have been an early Ceratopsian, 
and we're missing the part of the skull that would have had horns or a frill if it was a ceratopsian, so we can't really compare too easily. And some of the features that look pretty unique for a thyreophoran are actually pretty common in ceratopsia. So there might be a revision on this, but I checked and there hasn't been a revision yet, so I'm still considering it to be a thyreophoran. Even if it's a ceratopsian, though, that might make it even crazier that it's a bipedal ceratopsian in the Cretaceous with osteoderms and this yeah, jaw and everything. Especially being in the Cretaceous. Yeah. All right, we've also got a best stegosaur. Speaking of thyreophorans. Yeah, that's what I was saying. We've snuck a few thyreophorans in. I do like stegosaurs a lot. Maybe they might be my second favorite after sauropods. I'm not sure. I'd have to think about that. I mean, they're closely related to ankylosaurs, so I like them too. <laughs> this new stegosaur is Bashanosaurus. It was found in a wall of dinosaur fossils. And it's estimated to be about nine feet or three meters long. It might be a subadult, though, so it's possible it grew more. What's really cool about it is it's the earliest known stegosaur in Asia and one of the earliest known stegosaurs in the world. It lived in the Middle Jurassic. And it might show an, or at least help show, an Asian origin for stegosaurs. Stegosaurs have apparently been found on all continents except for Antarctica and Australia. Hmm. That's an interesting tidbit. Yeah, they did pretty well for themselves. So we cover a lot more about Bashanosaurus in episode 382. Shifting gears a bit, we've got the furthest reaching dinosaur story. And by that I mean this has to do with dinosaurs and it went really far because the story's on the moon. <laughs> yeah, the moon is very far. Yes. <laughs> We talked more about this in episode 412 when we talked about a bunch of papers that had to do with dinosaur extinction. But in particular, just this story, probably because it had to do with the moon, <laughs> was really interesting. And it's that you could study the moon and that a team did study the moon to better understand asteroid impacts on Earth, like the Chicxulub, which led to the extinction of non-avian dinosaurs in the Cretaceous. Mm -hmm. They studied these glass beads that came from soil samples from the moons, and these are glass beads that formed from so much heat and pressure from impacts, and they shot up into the atmosphere. A lot of them fell back down, but some of them, because of the force, went all the way to the moon. Yeah, they actually managed to escape Earth's gravitational well and make it to the moon. That's so insane. Yeah. It's another one of those depictions of just how hard that asteroid hit. Yes. It's almost unbelievable. And the fact that you can kind of date these glass beads and know like, yeah, these came from around the same time as the Chicxulub impact crater is amazing. Mm -hmm. So yeah, who knew? Because I know there's a lot of us who we like learning about dinosaurs. We also like learning about space, but putting it together like that. It's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. That's crazy that the moon has that sort of record on it of things on Earth and that pieces of Earth were getting flung to the moon in the time of dinosaurs. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it's just so interesting. So I tend to think about like the first time things from Earth made it to the moon were when we built rockets and went there, not nope. when asteroids hit. <laughs> yeah. There's a lot going on. It's supposed to be stuff coming to the Earth, not leaving the Earth. Right, then we've got our best T-Rex study, or studies, 
every year there are so many T-Rex studies. I think this might be one that we actually have pretty much every year. This one is from SVP. There were multiple people talking about tyrannosaurs and why they had tiny arms. And I think the most interesting take was that they had tiny arms before they had huge heads. Yeah. So it wasn't as simple as you've got the legs in the middle and it's a teeter-totter. And because the head kept getting bigger and bigger, the arms had to shrink. Mm -hmm. Because now we've seen that there were other early tyrannosaurids or tyrannosauroids that were on the same sort of pathway towards tyrannosaurus that were already getting really small arms back when they still had relatively small heads compared to some other dinosaurs that have pretty big arms. So yeah, there was some other advantage to the small arms. Yeah, we don't know exactly what it is. They there still hasn't been a great proposal answering why, but we know now that it wasn't just because they had big heads. And that's going to take a really long time to make it out of the all the facts that people memorize about dinosaurs because I think that's one of the, the most common things. Why did T-Rex have small arms? Because it had a big head. Not exactly. It could have been because it had a head that was so useful, though, I suppose, which is related. Things for future studies. Mm-hmm. Going back to sauropods. <laughs> <laughs> Who'd have thunk it? <laughs> yep. We've got the smallest sauropod of the year, and it's a titanosaur that was <laughs> described. Iberania. That sounds like an oxymoron, being the smallest sauropod and a titanosaur. Yeah. It's about 19 feet or six meters long, and the paper that described it said that it's a nanoid taxa. <laughs> Just, yeah, really interesting what is considered a titanosaur and... Yeah, when you, you take into account the size, but I think it has to do more with the, the structure of the bones. Yeah, it's like smaller than Dilophosaurus, <laughs> it's, like Allosaurus. Oh, it is similar in size to the dwarf sauropod Magyarosaurus, which is, you know, from Hatseg Island and is known for being a small dinosaur. This is one that wasn't from an island though, right? Unlike Magyarosaurus. It was found in what is now Southeast Brazil. And yeah, it was not, it did not live on an island. So the small size wasn't probably because of insular pressure when animals evolved to smaller sizes because they live in a small area like an island. But there might have been some pressures in its environment that were similar to living on an island. And that made them smaller in size. Yeah, like a lack of food. Yeah. Yeah, that's really interesting. I thought that was the craziest thing about that one, that it was so small and it was on this continent that had lots of huge predators. <laughs> yes. This is nuts. What was going on there? There's got to be a very interesting story, ecological story there. That one as a quick bonus too. We also talked about that sauropod Iberania in episode 386 before it had a name because it had a gnarly pathology had to do with blood parasites. Oh, yeah. And the open sores over its body. Well, weren't there like worms or something? Some kind of, yeah, like wormy kind of parasite. Or actually, wait, episode 386 is when we talked about its pneumatic bones. Episode 316, which was not from 2022, that's why it wasn't included in our pathology consideration, is when we talked about, yeah, the blood parasites. Some kind of microorganisms... And there was a bone infection, too, that reached the bone through the bloodstream and spread. Ugh, so it, yeah. it all looked lesioned. Yeah, that's that's unpleasant. 
Yeah, but we can just think about it as this small sauropod that didn't live on an island. They weren't all infected. Yeah, <laughs> that's true. <laughs> At least I hope not. And now getting to the main event, we've got the best new herbivore. The main event. And as I hinted at earlier, it is an ankylosaur. Yeah, it is pretty cool. It is so cool. It was actually technically published in December of 2021, but we covered it this year and we do it based on our year of podcasting. It wasn't eligible for last year's best of, mm -hmm. and it needs to be in a best of, so it's in this year's best of. <laughs> it's a new ankylosaur named Stegouros elengasin, and the really interesting thing about it is its tail. Its tail is crazy. It's a really interesting weapon. When you look at the tail, you actually kind of think it's a stegosaur by the size and shape and everything of it. But the head is clearly an ankylosaur, and that's really how you know an ankylosaur is an ankylosaur by looking at the head. So it's pretty firmly considered an ankylosaur. It's estimated to be about 1.5 to 1.65 meters or five to five and a half feet long and about 50 centimeters or one and a half feet tall. So it's a little cutie. It's also slender limbed and probably an adult since the expected bones are fused, the ones that you expect to see fused as an adult. And they describe it informally as dog sized, which makes it even cuter. We have a lot of cute sounding dinosaurs in our best of list this year. they're our favorites, yeah. <laughs> We've got some pretty intimidating predators in the mix too, though. The crazy thing about Stegouros is half of the tail is covered in seven pairs of large triangular osteoderms sticking out of the sides, which look sort of like a thagomizer if a thagomizer was a little bit more blunt and more solid. So there aren't big gaps in between the spikes. They're all stuck together and they're wider. The mass of osteoderms is about 30 centimeters or one foot long and about 15 centimeters or half a foot wide and about five centimeters or two inches thick. So it is quite a formidable chunk of osteoderms. <laughs> yes. I, at the time, I described it as a huge double-headed axe, although on our Discord, somebody pointed out it's more like a maqua huitl, which ends in that lateral fricative that you get in Nahuatl. That's a really interesting weapon in and of itself because it's like a club or a bat with obsidian blades sticking out of both sides of it. <laughs> it's really intense, just like Stegouros. By comparing its features phylogenetically, its closest relative is Antarctopelta, which means it's possible that Antarctopelta also had a crazy maqua-like tail club knife osteoderm spike situation. Weapon on its tail? Yes, because we didn't find any of Antarctopelta's tail. And they're both from around the same time in the late Cretaceous, about 72 million years, plus or minus a couple million years. And... In the early Cretaceous, at least, South America, Antarctica, and Australia were still touching. And I should mention, it also has a lot in common with Kumbarasaurus in Australia, although Kumbarasaurus is about 30 million years older. And we do have part of Kumbarasaurus's tail with no sign of the crazy weapon. So that one's a little less likely than Antarctopelta. But it is insane. Stegouros may be the coolest, most unique dinosaur weapon we've seen in this year. Although last year we had Spicomelus, 
with that rib with spikes sticking out of it. Yeah, that was cool. <laughs> which is also insane. What was going on with that dinosaur? I don't know. I love these new weird dinosaurs. It's just fantastic. So this one we covered early on in the year, episode 372. And then I have an honorable mention of the best herbivore, which is another Thyreophorian, which looks quite a bit like an ankylosaur, but it's older in the dinosaur family tree than the branches of ankylosaurs and stegosaurs. So it has to just be a basal Thyreophorian and not an ankylosaur. It is named Yushisaurus. They found quite a bit of this one as well. Lots of pieces from all over the body, including the skull in this case, and then a lot of the limbs and vertebrae and things like that. But the most interesting thing is that there were over 120 osteoderms that they found, and most of them are in really beautiful condition. They describe it as a medium-sized armored dinosaur. And even though they didn't give an official size estimate, I took an estimate from their skeletal, which they drew to scale, mm -hmm. and it was about 5 meters or 16 feet long. I think that's about the same size as your <laughs> tiny sauropod, isn't it? <laughs> it's similar, yeah. As usual, about half of that is its tail, also similar to that sauropod probably, although we have zero of the tail, sacrum, or hips, so that's only a really rough estimate how much of it is tail. At least we have all those osteoderms. We do, and we can tell from its humerus and scapula that it probably stood higher off the ground than ankylosaurs did as a basal thyreophoran. Its head is a lot like stegosaurus. It's missing the large fused osteoderms that you see on ankylosaurs, and it has a beak. But if you look at the paleo art of it, you will think it is an ankylosaur because of all that armor that it has on it. And some of it has pretty big keels or like spike looking armor on it as well. The crazy thing, though, is it is 185 million years plus or minus 10 million years old, which is super old for something that looks like an ankylosaurus. It's the first early Jurassic thyreophoran found anywhere in Asia, but it's not the oldest thyreophoran in the world. Scutellosaurus takes that honor at about 196 million years ago from Navajo Nation in Arizona. This one was found in... Yunnan province, China. The really cool thing, though, is that it shows that in the early Jurassic, we had these already ankylosaur-looking thyreophorans covered in armor, and the thyreophorans were already really widespread in North America, Africa, Europe, and Asia. Yeah, so if you want to hear even more about Yushisaurus, we covered that in episode 385. And last but not least in our top 22, not including the bonus, is the best new carnivore. Definitely not least. <laughs> Definitely not. Possibly the best overall dinosaur discovered in the whole year. Stegouros is amazing, but this one might be scientifically even more amazing. Carnivores also just tend to grab more interest. They do. This one is especially just so great. So it is Meraxes gigas. You may have already guessed that that was going to be the one because we haven't mentioned Meraxes yet. The name Meraxes comes from George R. R. Martin's The Song of Ice and Fire. It's a huge, crazy, cool dragon. And thus, this is a huge, crazy, cool dinosaur. <laughs> Very fitting. It is the most complete Carcharodontosaurid ever found in the Southern Hemisphere. 
And a quick reminder that carcharodontosaurids are a group of allosauroids. And so, I mean, there are probably some more complete allosauroids in the Northern Hemisphere. But carcharodontosaurids look roughly like an extra large allosaurus with arms that are proportionally smaller than allosaurus, but still larger than T-Rex. However, this new paper will probably change that. And that's because they found Meraxes arms and they are really small. <laughs> just like Gualicho, Tyrannosaurids, and a whole bunch of Elbelosaurids, it has just very, very small arms. Unlike some of them, though, it did still have three fingers, so it looks kind of like a really miniature Allosaurus arm. They also found all the other best bits of the animal. They got most of the skull, other than the jaw. They got almost all of both feet, actually nearly all of both hind limbs from the hips and sacrum all the way down the legs to the toe claws. They got about half of the tail vertebrae starting from the hips back. They got over a dozen complete vertebrae. They got gastralia. They got rib fragments, neck vertebrae. And yeah, just so much of this dinosaur was found. And it fills in so many pieces that we don't know about these really large carcharodontosaurids. It was a pretty old specimen too, right? Yeah. They estimate that it was about 37 to 53 years old. They only counted 22 to 25 lags, but when you get that old, the earlier bone starts to get remodeled. So you have to sort of extrapolate how many lags would have gotten resorbed in the meantime. It makes it way older than any T-Rex that's ever been found, but carcharodontosaurids in general live longer than most other theropods. Not surprisingly, they think it was an adult too. So the size of it is probably a good indication of about how big these Meraxes individuals got. They consider it in the gigantic class of theropods, which is the group that are over four tons. And based on the skeletal, again, it's very roughly 10 meters or 30 feet long, which doesn't sound that long, but it's obviously very bulky. It has the most complete skull in all of Carcharodontosaurinae. The total skull length is estimated to be about 127 centimeters or four feet, two inches long. Cool. <laughs> it's a huge skull. And since it's such a complete skull, it's more complete than any Giganotosaurus skull we've ever found, but it's pretty similar in terms of its overall proportions and the way it looks and everything. So we can use Meraxes as a template for Giganotosaurus, and we think that Giganotosaurus now was roughly 162 centimeters or five foot four inches long. So still not the biggest Carcharodontosaur by any stretch, but just an incredibly important find. Meraxes also has a long, low, and profusely ornamented skull, as they describe it. Overall, similar to Acrocanthosaurus or Allosaurus, if you're not familiar with Acrocanthosaurus. It also has an especially long second toe claw, which is the innermost claw of the three forward-facing claws. And that claw is nearly twice as long as the outer claw. The big toe was about 44 centimeters or 17 inches long. This huge toe. And it likely lived after Mapusaurus, but before Giganotosaurus. Our selection of this as the most important new carnivore and maybe most important overall dinosaur was already validated by SVP because there were multiple talks about Meraxes, and some of them were just using Meraxes to start answering questions about Carcharodontosaurids that we couldn't answer before. Like, how did 
carcharodontosaurids bear all this extra weight without having the fancy arctometatarsalian foot that T-Rex had. Mm-hmm. And they started coming up with some answers for that. So super important find, at a, just a, overall a really cool dinosaur. So if you haven't heard our 408th episode, I recommend listening to that so you can hear more about Moraxes. Yeah. And then as promised, we've got a bonus non-dinosaur story about mosasaurs. This was a talk from SVP called Mosasaur Memoirs. It's <laughs> like it's like Stromer's Riddle, but with mosasaurs. And again, this was one of the stories in our bonus content for SVP. So we're just giving you a taste of it. And we have even more stories like this for our patrons. So why is it like Stromer's Riddle? Well, There's a whole bunch of different types of mosasaurs found in the Bear Paw Formation in Alberta, Canada. At least five different types, and it's curious. Like, How did they all live together? Well, it turns out that they probably spent their time at different levels of the water. Um, One way you can tell this is by looking at carbon, oxygen, and strontium isotopes. The carbon isotopes help show the diets and the food chain. The oxygen isotopes help show how salty the seawater is and the temperature, and that helps in terms of checking habitat partitioning. And the strontian isotopes are in seawater, so animals that feed in seawater have them, and they help to, or they seem to indicate migration. There's some different strontium signatures that come from different soils. So it seems that these larger mosasaurs probably dove deeper in the water. So they kind of partition in that way in the water. And some of them, such as tylosaurs, may have lived closer to the sea's surface. So yeah, they all lived in slightly different habitats, even though they're all mosasaurs and they kind of eat similar stuff. They all lived at different depths. Mm-hmm. That is super interesting. Because with Stromer's riddle, the answer was partly, maybe Spinosaurus was eating a lot of fish. Yeah. In this case, it's, well, maybe one of the mosasaurs was eating fish up high and the other one was eating fish in the middle another one was eating i don't know squid or something yeah in a different layer and as you had pointed out earlier when we first talked about this story it's hard to know with fossils that animals lived in different levels of the water because they all kind of fossilize on the same level mm-hmm. yeah you lose that vertical information for where they are in the water column once they all fall to the bottom and start fossilizing. All right, so that is most of our top discoveries of 2022. Before we finish it off with our fun facts and also our dinosaur of the day, Hans Susia, we're going to take a quick break for our sponsors. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. 
Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. And now on to our dinosaur of the day, Hansusia, which was a request from Crow and Tyrant King via Patreon and Discord. So thanks. It was a pachycephalosaurid that lived in the late Cretaceous in what is now Alberta. It's been found in the Dinosaur Park Formation, Dinosaur Provincial Park, and the Oldman Formation, as well as Montana. It was found in the Judith River Formation. It looked similar to Pachycephalosaurus. It walked on two legs. It had short arms and a long tail and, of course, that dome on the top of the skull. It's estimated to be 7.9 feet or 2.4 meters long. The type species is Hansusia sternbergi. It's named based on a skull dome. Oh, so the holotype is a, a skull dome? Yes. I was thinking Hansusia is definitely a guy's name. Well, <laughs> yes. <laughs> but you're not talking about etymology. <laughs> the genus name is in honor of the paleontologist Hans Dieter Seuss for his work on pachycephalosaurs. And then the species name is in honor of Charles M. Sternberg, who found the fossil in 1928 in southern Alberta. And the fossil, again, is just the skull dome. It did have a thick skull roof like other pachycephalosaurs, and it had unique features, including that the front of the dome was as wide in the front as it was in the back. Now, originally, Hansusia was named Troodon Sternbergi by Barnum Brown and Eric Schleicher in 1943. Wow. It was thought to be a Troodon. Yes. That's very different than a pachycephalosaur. Yeah, but then just two years later, 1945, Charles M. Sternberg referred Troodon Sternbergi to Stegoceras Sternbergi. I guess it was just based on teeth. So if they have teeth that are similar to pachycephalosaurus, you can see how that would happen. Oh, the Troodon. Yeah, but again, this is just the skull roof. Hansusi has also been referred to Gravitholus in the past. Then it was named Hansusia by Robert Sullivan in 2003. And even though it's the skull roof, the holotype has been found to represent a nearly fully adult individual. And, you know, it's estimated to be kind of large. In the 1943 description, Brown and Schleicher wrote that it was, quote, a rather large species. Yeah, I guess for a pachycephalosaur, but for a dinosaur at 7.9 feet, 2.4 meters, that's not particularly big. Yeah. Well, maybe in the 40s, <laughs> it was considered bigger. <laughs> Now, Sullivan, who named Hansusia in 2003, had mentioned that Stegoceras had perhaps unintentionally become a wastebasket taxon, that does seem to happen to a few of these, for small to medium-sized pachycephalosaurs found in North America. And then he looked at this one closely, and that's how he came up with Hansusia. Now, in the same paper where he named Hansusia, he also synonymized Ornitotholus with Stegoceras, so he was both a lumper and a splitter. Hmm. Sullivan wrote, quote, Brown and Schleicher, 1943, were largely correct in their characterization and assessment of this taxon, and it is to their credit that the species is here and resurrected, end quote. But it was hard to characterize until more specimens were found. Brown and Schleicher thought that there was individual variation, changes in growth, and differences in gender within Stegoceras hence differences in those individuals found. There are six referred specimens now in addition to the holotype of Hansusia. Most of those specimens, they're mostly frontoparietals, which is the front of the skull. So there's still some debate about the validity of Hansusia. Ryan Schott and David Evans had previously argued that Hansusia was Stegoceras and that the differences in the dome were due to ontogeny. It changed as it grew. 
And in 2020, an abstract by Aaron Dyer and Mark Powers in the Canadian Society of Vertebrate Paleontology suggested Gravitholus and Hansusia to be synonymous with Stegoceras. So there might be some ongoing debate here. <laughs> Either Stegoceras is a wastebasket taxon or it is just Stegoceras. Yeah. <laughs> and for our fun facts, we got a double feature of our two favorite fun facts. And our first one is from episode 371, and that is unlikely that dinosaurs had venom, but some non-avian dinosaurs may have been toxic. Dun, dun, dun. Yeah. And so I need to clarify, venom is a poison that is actively secreted by animals, often like injected by something like a fang, whereas animals can be toxic without having venom, usually a self-defense mechanism. For example, plants and animals that you shouldn't eat but like don't do anything to you unless you eat them mm -hmm. might be toxic. For the record, Dilophosaurus evolved about 100 million years before the first snakes and the group of animals that evolved venom, which are called toxicophorans, didn't evolve until about 200 million years ago, which was long after dinosaurs were established. So the idea of dinosaurs having venom is possible, but you can't really rationalize it based on them being related to other reptiles that have venom because that happened way after dinosaurs had split off. If we use birds and crocodilians as our modern dinosaur analogs, there aren't any birds or crocodilians that produce venom, but there have been reports of crocodile gallbladders being poisonous. Hmm. That might be a myth. We're not really sure, but that would make them potentially toxic in some way. However, there are several birds that contain poison, and they are known as toxic birds. <laughs> <laughs> so they're actually, by definition, there are toxic dinosaurs, and so there might have been toxic non-avian dinosaurs as well. Hmm. Toxic birds are thought to collect poison from poisonous plants and insects when they eat them, and then they store it up just like the same way they get their colors, their bright colors, by eating colorful plants and then storing those colors. One potentially poisonous bird is the common quail, also known as the European quail. Quail occasionally eat poisonous plants, which can make their meat poisonous, possibly hemlock seeds. There's actually a name for the illness called coternism, because the quail genus name is coternix. But there are also two cute little birds that are basically poisonous all the time. There are pituis. Gotta watch out for the cute ones. Yeah. <laughs> and ifrits both in New Guinea, which are toxic, they can secrete neurotoxins through their skin, like a poison dart frog. And the toxin also sometimes covers their feathers. We think they collect the toxin from eating a beetle with the same toxin that ends up on their feathers. And researchers who have handled the birds report feeling numbness in their hands after the fact. <laughs> it's a little scary. And in larger doses, the neurotoxin can cause paralysis or stop a heart. So it's serious business, not something you would want to eat, that's for sure. Yeah. There's also the spur-winged goose in Africa, which has a very powerful poison in its meat. It's also collected from beetles that it eats. So there are, in fact, multiple toxic birds, and it's possible that in the Mesozoic, there was a dinosaur that ate beetles or some poisonous plant, stored up those neurotoxins and secreted them onto their feathers or onto their skin and became toxic to anything that tried to eat it. Hmm. Unfortunately, 
signs of toxicity are much less likely to fossilize than signs of venom because they don't have, you know, fangs to go along with them or anything. So we may never know. Yeah. It just kind of glands in the skin or something. That, but, I, you know, with these soft tissue yeah. things we talked about today, maybe we'll find something. There's hope. That would be interesting. That would probably make it into a best of. Yeah, I think so. <laughs> Definitely. And our second fun fact and the last discovery we want to highlight from 2022 is that some dinosaurs had quote unquote belly buttons. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> when you said that, I was like, what? Yeah. <laughs> How? It's it's in quotes because... Yeah, you couldn't hear Sabrina's air quotes around belly buttons, but they were there. Oh, I said quote unquote. Oh. <laughs> but it's in quotes because it's actually umbilical scars, the umbilicus. Very similar. I mean, that's not dissimilar from a belly button, right? Yeah. It's developing embryos and egg-laying amniotes, and that includes mammals, birds, and reptiles, get their nutrients from membranes, including a yolk sac. And before hatching, those membranes detach and then leave either a temporary or permanent umbilical scar, also known as the umbilicus, and that's similar to our humans' belly buttons. And scientists found the umbilicus of a cetacosaurus from 130 million years ago. It's the oldest known umbilicus of an amniote and the first known umbilicus of a non-avian dinosaur. That one cetacosaurus find has so many firsts. Yes. It's got the counter shading. There's all sorts of soft tissue stuff. There was a whole thing on its cloaca. Yeah, it's a very <laughs> nearly complete or specimen. With lots of good soft tissue. Yeah. Now, it doesn't mean all dinosaurs had these umbilical scars, but it is cool to know that at least some of them did. Mm-hmm. Something to include in the paleo art, I guess. Yeah. So we get into more details on that in episode 408. And that is our top 22 discoveries of 2022 for episode 422. How many twos can we <laughs> cram in there? That said, we're really looking forward to 2023 and we'll be celebrating eight years of I Know Dino. Can you believe it? Eight years already. I can't. That's a lot. <laughs> and it's actually 10 years if you include when we started the website. Yeah, that's true. So a lot to look forward to and celebrate next year. We're also building a new recording studio, partly because we've run out of space. We need space for the baby. Yeah, we need to turn <laughs> the room we're recording in into a nursery. <laughs> yep. So... Yeah, hopefully we'll get a nice little shed going in the backyard where we can record our episodes in the future. Yeah, and then we've got lots of great plans, especially for our patrons, so stay tuned. Definitely, lots of big announcements coming up. And that wraps up this episode of I Know Dino. Thank you so much for listening. Happy New Year. Until next time.